We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. On today's podcast, Weldon Rodenberg back in the co-host seat, wrapping up some fall camp thoughts, got into a little bit of Louisville at the end. A lot of John Rice Plumley talk with Weldon and the uh, the staff saw from him as a recruit, his transition at, uh, to receiver after a uh, couple of years at the quarterback position, and a couple other topics, kind of what goes into recruiting, and of course took the uh, message board's mailback questions. So thank you to each and everyone who sent in mailback questions. Really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, pretty entertaining show. I thought this was a good one and we will kind of kick it into game week with this show. So, but before we get to that, remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Football season is upon us. I know some of you people that didn't use Skybox lost money in week zero. You should sign up now and recoup some of that back as the full slate of games gets going this week for college football, NFL the week after that. Ole Miss is going to play a game less than eight days from now, depending on when you're listening to this. It is full go. You need to help Scott. You need to let Skybox help you get in the profit, get in the black, because last thing you want is the man texting you Sunday night, Monday morning, already got the scaries asking to settle up. You need to be texting him asking to pay you. And Skybox is the best possible way to do that. They've got weekly packages, monthly packages. I'd recommend just going with the year-long pass for all sports. That'll cover it. You will make your money back and then some and consistently profit. But uh, if you want to try them out, try the week-long pass. They got month-long sports-centric. You do all sports. Try daily pass if you want to. Use the promo code RIPPY. Let them know we sent you. 20% 20% off any purchase right now. If you get the college football package, you get the futures picks free, which is pretty solid. If you're into NASCAR, they're crushing on NASCAR as well, running a promo, uh, enter the promo code NASCAR for listening to this podcast. You get 30% off all kinds of deals. Check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Absolutely the best way to ensure you are consistently winning money as football season gets here. Best of luck and go use Skybox. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg, Mailbag Friday on last week. Probably going to do some sort of gambling-centric segment, both with Greg and Skybox as the podcast gets going into football season as well. But you need to go check them out. Best place in Mississippi to get meat. 
Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, all kinds of sausages. Got people sending pics of uh, some crab stuff, mushrooms, look like some fillets, different stuff. I saw someone got, I think, a Boston butt from Greg. Maybe I had that wrong. I'm not a, not the grilling expert myself, but I saw that on the message board. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Beats the hell out of Kroger. Beats the hell out of any other place you're going to go. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. Type in your email. Free newsletter for me three to five times a week. And... LB's meat steals, which right now is a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kick off a Saturday with the full slate of games. Maybe throw it on the grill, have the sausage a little bit before, then get to the main course, do it the way you want to, but that's a hell of a way to start your Saturday. Check them out. LB's university Avenue across from Kroger. All right, here we go. What's up? Happy Sunday. I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights Podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is every Sunday, but probably not next Sunday, Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist. Well, we'll get into some scheduling stuff uh, in a second regarding the game Monday next week, but excited to talk some football. Game week is upon us. Um, I'm excited football season's here. Got a lot to uh, lot to cover. We'll do some uh, camp wrap-up, maybe take a little bit of a look at Louisville and then just get into some stuff that kind of comes with game week. The media talked to John Rice Plumley earlier in the week. Uh, I thought he had a really interesting interview, um, which is kind of saying something for the third week of camp and a kid to get in front of the microphone. And you're like, oh, I actually learned a decent bit here. So we'll get into that. Some Kiffin stuff, probably some injuries. Uh, what's up, man? Oh, not too much. Yeah, I will not be here next Sunday. I will be uh, in Los Angeles for the LSU-UCLA game, uh, which is I'm super excited about. But who knows what it's going to be like a week from now, a week from when we get there, because, you know, COVID. <laughs> you California's a different deal with COVID. Yeah, you just never know what's going to happen these days. But, uh, yeah, glad to be back. Glad to be talking some real football because yesterday was absolute trash <laughs> on every single game was terrible. And, I mean, I don't understand why the schedule makers did that. Like, at least give us something to, like, sink our teeth in if you're going to do a slate of week zero. But, yep, glad to be here and let's get going. We uh, Before we get to that, I know what uh, you're BR native. How is the family? What's going on in that area? I know there's a lot of scary shit going around with Hurricane Ida. Seems like that thing uh, really like – so you're you're obviously more well-tuned to like hurricanes than I am. I mean, I'm from the Mississippi kid. Katrina's really about the only thing I remember. A couple other like bad ones through the years where we got like rain and stuff. But this one seems to really picked up speed, I would say, in the fourth quarter before it made landfall. How are your folks? What's going on in BR? Yeah, so – my brothers are out of college. Sam actually lives in Dallas with you. Elliot's in Nashville. They're fine. My parents are actually driving to California as we speak. They just sent me a picture from, uh, from Shreveport. They just didn't want to risk it with flights next week because this thing really seems like it's going to be a problem. And, you know, I kind of feel kind of like an odd sense of guilt because – I've gone through so many hurricanes living in Baton Rouge and now I'm in Houston and I'm like not there. And it's just kind of a weird feeling, you know, and it's going to be, it looks like it's going to be pretty bad and it shaped up quickly, which tends to happen with just the, the heat and the water in the Gulf. And, you know, New Orleans is going to be in bad shape and that city infrastructure wise is such a disaster, but hopefully it, you know, calms down. I know it's supposed to hit this morning, but yeah, I guess, prayers and thoughts to those people back home but my end everyone's okay at least right now that's good to hear yeah i thoughts and prayers to everyone out there hope you all guys stay safe mississippi gulf coast 
Louisiana, wherever you may be listening, uh, be safe and uh, let's hunker down and get through this thing. So your parents driving to California, I imagine that was probably a like, eh, to hell with it. Let's just kind of turn this into a longer vacation thing. See some parts of the country type of deal. Yeah, actually, yesterday was my dad's 60th birthday. Hell and, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, they've always wanted to do a road trip. And so they were like, well, we're definitely uh, getting out of here somehow. So why don't we just go ahead, cancel the flights? They brought our two dogs with them. Uh, they're having to go through, you know, usually you go to Houston on 10. But yesterday it took, actually, I saw it earlier today. It took the LSU football team 10 hours to get from Baton Rouge to Houston, which is usually a four hour drive. So there's a lot of evacuating going on. They ended up, my parents ended up going up towards Shreveport and Dallas and just kind of going out of the way, but yeah. So I'm sure that'll be kind of fun. For sure. Uh, just, you know, a couple <laughs> of those guys we knew in college, like did the Colorado road trip. I never did one of those by car, but no. like, <laughs> right. You see a lot of middle of America, but man, I don't know if I have the patience to stay in the car that long. Uh, no matter what was brought back from uh, Colorado. I just don't think that would uh, help me endure the trip at all. But uh, so we got some, we got a lot to get to this week. Like you mentioned, his game week had some week zero. I uh, So high school football started back in Texas on Friday. I'm still stringing games for the Dallas Morning News. And I got to say, for someone that uh, is probably accurately accused of uh, of being uh, slightly curmudgeon probably a little bit of a smartass, I was very like appreciative of football just being back. And I, I know it was like vague and as like corny as that sounds. I covered games last year, but of course it was not the same. Not really many people came to a lot of the high school football games because of COVID, even if there wasn't like capacity restrictions just with the masks and the lack of ability to do halftime stuff and everything that goes with it. I didn't get the full experience. And I went to a game with Mansfield Legacy and Grapevine High, which is one of the classic like, Texas, they share a stadium, so it was a rivalry game. Same school district-ish. It may be the exact same school district. I'm not sure. But point being, both the stands were packed like it was back to normal Texas high school football. The game wasn't even good. It was 42-7. to Neither one of the teams were worth this shit, but, like, I couldn't get enough. I was like, this is just kind of awesome to feel normal in a high school football stadium again or a football stadium at all. So I was going to come on here and say, I'll never, like, if I were still in the business, I would never complain about another old Miss kickoff no matter the time. That's probably giving myself too much credit. I would say it would take five years for me to complain about a kickoff time again. I'm just glad to have football in a normal sense again. Yeah. I mean, it's great to be back. I mean, I love high school football, so I might have to go check out a few around here in Houston. They've got some great programs, but it is so awesome to be back. I mean, I think there's going to be a, kind of an acclimation period. I mean, you saw UCLA and Illinois yesterday. I mean, there was no one at the games. But I think once, you know, assuming COVID ends at some point, <laughs> there will get people back in the stands and people will feel more normal and more prepared to go to these games. And I think SEC-wise, it's going to be back to normal. And that's really exciting and a lot of fun. Yeah, I was about to say there's definitely some COVID that goes with it, but also just having a Pac-12 game on national television for week zero is probably not going to become the greatest indicator of what like the crowd size and interest level is going to be. Yeah. I watched a little yesterday. I played I played golf in the morning, and then I got on. I got done in time <laughs> for uh, most of Illinois, Nebraska, which it seemed like Vegas wise they were not giving Illinois too much of a chance. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that started off nine to two. So I wasn't looking at it like before the game. I didn't pay much attention beforehand, 
But man, they really just kind of ran over him in the second half. And then you got the social media Scott Frost hot boards, which is always great. Um, you got to love a, a, a hot board in August. But yeah, it was. I was kind of the same way. It was cool to see like college football, high level football again. But the game, just like you said, just kind of stunk. Yeah. Um, what do you like? What do coaching staffs think of Week Zero? I know you were never on one that played in it, but like, just put yourself in those shoes for a minute. Would you or anyone you worked for be fired up about playing a week early? Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know. We obviously, like you said, we never played a Week Zero. I think you you would kind of schedule out your fall camp appropriately. Um, I would imagine they don't have too big of an opinion on week zero. You know, I don't think it's an advantage by any means. I mean, UCLA might have a small advantage because they had to play a crap Hawaii team to kind of get like a little warm up for LSU next week, which was going to be a road game for them. If that's how many fans show up, <laughs> LSU will outnumber them. By a lot, you know, I'll be there. They they expecting about forty five to fifty thousand from Louisiana, and I expect that to be more with this hurricane. Um, but a conference game on week zero, like Nebraska and Illinois, if I was a coaching staff, I would hate that. That would be terrible. I mean, you just really opening up with a conference game. I know some teams do. I think Ohio State's actually doing it this year against Minnesota. That's just never fun you know this is such an important game and just to be able to not you know have some feet under you before you get to that slate is that that's rough yeah and talk about like I was that made me think of when Ole Miss did it in 2013 talk about a bitch of a a season opener because not only are you starting with a conference opponent they started on the road on a Thursday night against like one of the greatest Vanderbilt teams of all time. That was like the last James Franklin year. Of course, Ole Miss comes out on top with the Jeff Scott run or whatever, but like, I imagine that's kind of probably in your wheelhouse in terms of what you're thinking about. Like that would just be no fun all around to prepare for and have to start off with. That just does not seem great. You'd prefer to have the tune up. Yeah. You definitely want to have the tune up. And I mean, it's really kind of about the state of your program, you know, if you're not in a good place, you get stuck on a Thursday night against Vanderbilt to start off your season. Um, but the SEC, I think they've kind of gotten away from that. I don't think you see many uh, many opening SEC games anymore. Obviously, last year was a different deal. But, yeah, you, you don't want that. And it, for some reason, some conferences do it, and I've never understood that. Got it. I mean, it's just simply TV, TV money. Like, uh, you know, I imagine some of them in terms of like the schools obviously probably don't have much of a choice, uh, particularly if it's a conference game. Sure. But as we kind of transition into Ole Miss here, they are finishing up. So we're recording on a Sunday morning. They're going to have a mock game tonight, Sunday night, to kind of culminate fall camp. Kiffin spoke on Friday, I believe, yeah, 26th. So Friday. No, Thursday, excuse me. See, I can't keep my day straight. And was kind of mentioning that Thursday-ish was the last day of, like, full camp, and then they kind of got into some Louisville stuff, and then they'll have a mock game and probably try to at least some degree get the guys off their feet a little bit after, get them rest up. Probably a little, a lot of mental prep for Louisville coming out of camp, uh, maybe a little less physical than they have been in the last week or so. What's, uh, we'll just start off as I always do, just kind of putting yourself back in, in, in the room and in the building. What's kind of the transition out of camp into game week? Like, I imagine it's probably rejuvenating in some senses because you've gone through a fairly lengthy camp. And then finally, like your normal game week routines here, you're about to go hit someone else in a game that counts. Yeah, you, you start to get in your game week routine that you'll have throughout the season. And 
for Kiffin, it's, you know, real practices on earlier in the week. And then, you know, Thursday, you're kind of slowing it down. And Friday, you do absolutely nothing. You know, you really just do a walkthrough. And that's his biggest thing is he always wants to have fresh legs. He's not going to over, you know, exert what you need for a game day, especially the day or two before. But the, the real, they're still real practices. You know, they're still going to be in pads at least one day a week, probably Tuesday or Wednesday, just depends, maybe both. But uh, it's it'll be exciting for them. There'll be a kind of a new sense of urgency game coming up. It's weird that it's on a Monday, so their schedule might be a little bit different. I don't know when they're traveling or anything like that, but uh, it they'll be ready to go. It'll be just kind of an interesting deal on how they handle a Monday night game, especially the quick turnaround. I know they're playing Austin P, but you know there's going to be a change in schedule for next week as well. For sure. And I guess this is as good a place to start as any. Let's start with the pianist turned quarterback turned wide receiver. He had – media availability this week and it's kind of a joke on the rebel grove message board from what i picked up on pretty quickly is like you know there's plumbly maybe is a little bit polarizing and honestly for the life of me i don't really understand why so we both watched that video in the press conference and like some people are gonna think this is like a blowhard statement but like jesus that seems like a kid that's gonna like be a politician one day like that kid seems like he's going to be like some sort of public speaker just the way he like even just the way he like addresses media and like kind of looks whoever is asking the question in the eye and just can immediately kind of spout off a pretty well thought out answer. I, I just always find that impressive with Plumley. I don't understand for the life of me, like how you couldn't like the kid. He seems like a great dude. He seems like the kid like your mom wishes you were like, if my mom was like, man, such your disappointment. Like I like here's like, if, if she could point someone to like model after what she would hope I turned into, it's probably Plumley athlete plays the piano. seems like a smart kid. I just don't see how you could dislike that kid, but you were in the, in the building every day is kind of what you see front facing because one of the things he is accused for is, is loving the camera. But I mean, how he's in college having the time of his life. Yeah. I, I'm not going like, to, I don't, if someone knocks a kid for enjoying and having fun with like the production crew in college, that probably says more about them than it does the kid. What's he like inside the buildings? What you see, what you get. It is. Yeah, it is. I know people have always said that whole camera deal, but the fact of the matter is the cameras in the marketing department love Plumley. Yes. Probably more than he loves it, vice versa. You know, they are obsessed with the kid. Even when he clearly wasn't going to be the starter at quarterback, they're, you know, all eyes were on him. And from inside the building, that kind of got a little bit annoying after a while. Um, but no, he's a great kid. You know, I mean, I remember on his official visit, we actually like bought a piano to bring into the, uh, the end at Ole Miss for him. Really? And uh, one night after we all like went out and all the, you know, parents, and coaches, wives, and all that stuff. They had their dinner, and we were all in there just messing around. He's playing piano, and all the all the coaches' wives are just looking around like, yeah, this kid's not going to uh, – he's going to do just fine in college. <laughs> he's going to be just okay. And he, he is. I mean, he's a great kid. He's respectful, well-spoken, all that fun stuff. But um, he did – you could tell there was a little bit of a confidence – on him after fall camp last year just because he realized you know this offense isn't going to fit me like I, I just don't have the arm talent to, to do what they want me to do but I think it'll be good to see him in a different role this year um, and I think I know you're gonna have a few more questions on that but there's it was an interesting interview I don't know what you thought about it but there was a lot there that he was willing to share 
Well, and to, to give credit to the dudes on the other side of it, I thought Neil in particular asked a couple really interesting questions and we'll get to those in a minute, but I'd be remiss if I didn't press this further on his official visit, you had a piano in there and just the coaches and their wives hanging out while he did like his best, like Stevie wonder impression. He's just shredding with people around. How did, what was set the scene here a little further? I think this was the, I think it was the second night and we had like a dinner that night. So like the coaches wives and, you know, all the parents of the kids that are on the visits and whatnot, they had their own dinner and then we bring the kids to uh, another dinner and then out. And I think it was like late that night we all came back and, you know, JR classic just gets on the piano and that's why we got it for him. So I'm assuming he was going to start playing and we're all just messing around and he's just doing his thing. And, you know, it was just a fun, it was a fun deal. I think it, um, you know, that's not why he came to Ole Miss, but it is, it was a cool touch. And I think, you know, kind of seeing everyone around each other, just chilling and have just so relaxed uh, is always my personal, what I want on an official visit, never too pushy, just always relaxed, having fun. So that's what happened. Credit to the Shark Tank, credit to the coaching staff, credit to Siski, just getting a, a piano in there. I don't even I, I don't want to ask you where you got the piano, but like I don't even know where one gets. Is there piano stores? Do you order online? Like how did what's a how do you get a what's the logistics of getting a piano for the kid to shred? So I think Brent Chapman got the piano. Shout out to Brennan. There we go. Chapman got the piano. I don't remember how. I think it was actually kind of a pain in the ass, if I remember correctly. But I don't. I do not know what went into it. But uh, unsurprisingly, he he made it happen. So, so kid can obviously read music. Kid, guess to some degree, read defenses. I imagine that helps with receivers some. One of the things that we haven't talked about, you know, as, as much as Plumlee is discussed as a topic, I don't think you and I have really gotten into like that fall of 2020. It, it was so crazy to me because I had just moved out here. And so I wasn't around the program every day. And no one was really around it because of COVID and all that, but I wasn't getting to sit in every day. And it was interesting to me because everything you read and everything like, the coaching staff said, or any sort of like notes you could pick up at all from camp, it wasn't even that much of a battle. Like, yes, they did give Plumley his fair shake, but it seemed very evident early on that Matt Corral was going to be the quarterback for this football team. Like it just, like you mentioned, the offense didn't fit Plumley, but then you got not to call people out, but I just remember this one. Cause I, I think I fired up some smart ass tweet about it, but you got dudes like Barrett Salee going on and previewing Ole Miss on whatever CBS show he was on talking about how they'll be one of the most dynamic offenses in the country with John Rice Plumley or John Rice Plumley out there. I'm like, at slot, like, what is this guy talking about? He's not going to be the quarterback here. The disconnect locally and nationally about the quarterback battle or quarterback position, whatever you want to call it was, was wild to me last year. What was that camp like? Like, was, was that pretty accurate that early on, it just seemed very evident that it was going to be corral and the rest was just kind of semantics, I guess. Uh, to an extent, yeah. I mean, it was pretty evident pretty early who the guy was going to be, but Corral was still kind of having to mature to what was expected of him in this offense compared to the other one. And just from a, you know, just an overall standpoint, not just from a football standpoint, but from a, you know, a film, a learning, a responsibility. So there were some of those things that he had to kind of overcome. And I think there was just one week of practice where it kind of clicked for him and he kind of understood what Kiffin and Levy really were expecting of him. And it was, it was done from there. You know, he was just so dynamic. You know, he was dynamic in the practices the year before, 
it was just such a different offense and it just you know there was a lot going on the year before offensively but uh no it was all semantics and there was a weird that the whole deal with Salih I remember people were like expecting JR and it's like you know it's not really their fault they can't cover every single team to a T but yeah it was semantics from a certain point yeah, no, you're exactly right. Like, they, and I don't mean to pile on Barrett Salee, but like, it's 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 a lot of the national guys who saw him score five touchdowns against LSU, and because Ole Miss was not a marquee program, that's not on any of those national guys' radars to cover the minutia day to day stuff from Ole Miss camp. So, like, yeah, I'll give him a pass on that. But like, anyone who followed the program really from spring on didn't really probably anticipate Plumlee becoming the quarterback that fall. But kind of diving into that, it's always a fascinating dynamic to me because as much as I just like praised Plumlee like for the first like five minutes of this podcast, anyone who's like listened to this pod or any show I've done since fall of 2019, spring 2020, summer 2020, what have you. I was very anti the whole Plumlee thing at quarterback. I thought they were wasting Matt Corral's potential. I had Colin Brister on for a lot of it. He would kind of seek out legal advice on Twitter about how is there some sort of crime you could charge Rich Rodriguez with? Like our stance was quite clear on that. And you mentioned, you've mentioned it very diplomatically. There was a lot going on that uh, last year in 2019. That's probably a very uh, diplomatic way to put it. But even if Plumlee maybe fit the Rich Rod thing a little bit better, it just felt like it was so forced. That's what they wanted. And that's what they were going to do after a while. And the first chance they got to kind of legitimize the switch when Corral gets hurt against Cal after he'd had a really poor first half, like that's, you seemed to be what they kind of used to to really just make the switch and go to the identity they yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to stop that's okay, not no, push really, back. yeah that's not really what happened there was not a sense that they were dying to have Plumley to play that that really isn't isn't the case really? at all no it really isn't at all um when when Corral got hurt you know obviously he was not having a good game against Cal and that was a crap Cal team and you know they had some good DBs but it just it was a bad game plan, you know, just we were not playing well. But, uh, I mean, Plumlee kind of came in there and, I mean, sparked the entire offense. I mean, Absolutely. It, it, no doubt. There's nothing you can say about it. I mean, he really did. I'm pretty sure Elijah scored in that last touchdown, you know, just kind of a crazy, crazy ending. And it was led by Plumlee. And, you know, Corral had a real injury. And I think just it turned into, wow, like, you know, this is what we could have. And Matt, we'd given him opportunities and he, I mean, to just reality, Matt was not playing well, but was it, he's not playing well because the offensive system was, you know, not what it should be. <laughs> or was he not playing well? Cause he just didn't have it. Well, that wasn't the case. He won the quarterback job in camp. Like he had it, but it was just a, a lot of dynamics going on. Not all that, you know, scandalous, just Plumlee was really, playing well and dynamic, but he was just so limited. And that's the case to today. But it was not this whole, like, Matt, Luke, Rich Rod, just, like, crossing their fingers, like, waiting for Corral to go down because they wanted Plumlee. That, that was not the case. Yeah, I probably you're, – you're, you're right to push back on that. I probably framed that a little strongly. Is there any accuracy to the fact – like, the I guess, like, what I was getting at was, is there any accuracy to them seeing what Plumlee was when he got on the field – and them kind of wanting to go with that from there. Not that they were waiting for it and ditching Corral, but like it seemed like like Luke wanted to be this kind of – he loved to say the word smash mouth, and he loved to kind of want to be the, the kind of run it straight at you team. And I think not, oftentimes there was plenty of issues with Phil Longo, but oftentimes 
even when they were having success, it seemed like that's not exactly the identity that Luke wanted. So maybe, maybe waiting on Corral to slip up was definitely the wrong way to phrase that. But like, it was almost wishful thinking to a degree where they saw like flashes of what they had with Plumlee and they really wanted that version of it to succeed. The thing that always tripped me up about that was them bringing Corral in on obvious passing situations cold off the bench, having him sling one and then go stand on the sidelines for a while. Texas A&M, I think, comes to mind. And then Missouri, when Plumlee could not get the ball in the end zone that night, they just kept kicking field goal after field goal, not always going in. Corral sparked him in the second half, and then they alternated for the first time all season where it seemed to make sense for a little bit. But then they just never built anything off of that. And so that's why I was kind of getting at, like, it seemed like they wanted the Plumlee thing a little more than they wanted the Corral thing once Plumlee was in there. Sure. I mean, I could say that's fair. I mean, the rotating of quarterbacks, at least just to me, you know, I was not in the film room. That I was still not – I was full-time, but not as ingrained. Um, just as a football fan, I just hated that every single time it happened. It just is – got to just stick with the guy. I mean, you saw Kiffin this year. Yeah, that Arkansas game, which is one that's talked about a ton, it wasn't good. But there was never a doubt in anyone's mind who the quarterback was. And that's a real, you know, momentum, confidence booster. That's real, you know, that's tangible. Um, last year, I think Plumley came in and was had some seriously dynamic games. But the regression to the mean was real. And I think it was just a lack of adjustment that not noticing what was going on, you know. It's just kind of like, you know, Kaepernick, Lamar Jackson. These guys are super, super dynamic uh, in both ways, running and throwing. But once you get film on them, they kind of get to where they really are. You just eventually people just figure them out. Yeah, that's a, and that's a great way to spin it forward to what I was like before we went down the 2019 rabbit hole. What I was actually <laughs> going to ask you was we, no one ever really talked about the battle because it wasn't much of a battle. But to the untrained eye, you can see what Plumlee is like limited as a passer, but like in more of a, uh, an educated football sense, could you kind of give me an idea of what makes him limited? Because there are throws that he can make, but is it more of an arm strength or reading the defense and making decisions thing? Because yes, I understand like there are throws that Corral can make that Plumlee just can't, but beyond that, like what's, what's kind of the more detailed answer as to the difference between Plumlee and Corral? I mean, it's really arm talent. You know, it's not a it's not a football knowledge thing. It's just sheer arm talent. I mean, Plumlee just does not have the arm that Corral has. And it's not – I don't want to just bash the kid, but it's not particularly close either. You know, he kind of doesn't have really big hands and he doesn't have a big arm. And it, that really is a bad combination when you're trying to, you know, stretch the field like Levy wants to do. So that's really the, the gist of it. Pretty simple answer there. And so as we kind of like, yeah, I mean, that like I, I figured it was like that, I guess, obvious, but you know, it, it's always kind of interesting to hear someone who like knows the ins and outs of it a hell of a lot more than I do, I guess, either validated or pushed back. So as we, as we get to the actual Plumlee interview this time, I, I found it interesting him talking about learning receiver. And he said, when you play quarterback, you tend to model Aaron Rodgers, or maybe you tend to model Tom Brady, whoever you think you play like, and whoever maybe you grew up watching and it was your hero or whatever the case may be, it's one guy where I thought he gave a really interesting answer where he said at receiver, you can model, you can take, you can pull pieces from a lot of guys. It may be it's Julio Jones's footwork. And I'm just making up examples. Julio Jones is just a freak physically, but like 
someone else's Hollywood Brown's release or someone else's speed. And he just said, you could pull bits and pieces from a lot of different guys. And I found that to be an interesting answer because then he started relating it a little bit to guys at, at Ole Miss. He talked about kind of trying to model what Ely does in the open field. And I thought that was a really interesting answer that I hadn't thought about before. And what it told me was that he is very serious about learning this whole thing and trying to pick up on the nuances of it. And for someone that was closer to him and around him, is that something you think he can do quickly? Cause it does seem like he picks up on things quickly, whether it's piano or playing wide receiver. Yeah, I think he'll get it quickly. I really do think he will. I think he has the natural athletic ability to play that position. It's just kind of the little niche things, some of the route runnings, knowing what you're doing, where you're going, seeing space, reacting, and then obviously just catching the football and getting used to, you know, having that hummed at you the way Corral does. He's just a different kind of kid. You know, he just doesn't accept mediocrity. And I think that's why his confidence was kind of down after uh, the camp last year. He was like, man, like, this is just tough. Like, I hate not being great. And I think he's really going to come out and play really, really well this year because he just has so much already there that getting to the next step and the next phase of becoming a better receiver is, is going to be pretty close for him. How much of an advantage is it for him and other receivers to, yes, he's like, it's interesting dynamic because he is behind on having played wide receiver and having the experiences. You just mentioned all the nuances that he still needs to learn. How much is it of an advantage is it to have a former quarterback in the receiver room that could maybe translate or paint a picture of what's being seen on the other side from the guy throwing the football to the guy catching it? Like, this, is that a pretty big advantage or is that putting too much into nothing? No, I mean, it's a real kind of a philosophical advantage, I guess you could say. Um, that's a real thing. You know, he knows where the ball is supposed to go and he knows the offense from the quarterback position. So he knows where he's at at receiver and what's going on. And, you know, he said kind of an interesting answer. He's like, yeah, I know where the ball's supposed to go and where it's not supposed to go. And when I'm playing receiver, whether I'm the first read or the second read, that's probably not the attitude you should have because it still could come your way no matter what. Uh, but that, that's a real thing. And, you know, he gave kind of a kind of an odd answer when he was talking about where he's at. You know, he's in the quarterback room in the morning, the receiver, then back to quarterback. But he shaped it like that was his decision, which I thought was super weird. Like, it's not. He's in those rooms because the coaches are telling him. So I don't know why he said that. He might not admit it that way, which I, I kind of laughed at it. But um, I think that also kind of answers our question we asked earlier in the podcast of, who's going to be going in if Corral gets hurt. Uh, it's clearly Plumley. <laughs> you led me exactly to where I was taking you next. Because yeah, I had a feeling we were going there. Yeah, yeah, no, that was the other interesting part of it is he said, you know, we talked about this and the reports or whatever you want to call it. And Kiffin public facing said, no, he's going to spend hundred percent of his time at receiver. Not fair to ask him to go back and forth. And I remember writing about that in the newsletter when he said that. And like, I felt kind of like silly, like, just making the point and kind of parroting what Kiffin was talking about as like a public facing talking point. Cause even I didn't believe it like fully, but I just didn't know how much, if at all, they would have him do it quarterback. And so what I was going to ask you was, what does that tell you? Because the, for those of you that may not have seen the press conference, I know we both watched it last night, but I have a shit memory. So tell me if I framed this wrong, but it was basically that during camp, the way they set it up was quarterback room in the morning, go to receiver room midday and then back to the quarterback room kind of afternoon, whatever the wrap up version of what they do is. 
What did that tell you, by the way, other than, okay, yes, he's definitely a play backup quarterback. But like, did that say anything else to you at all? Well, it could be a lot of things, you know, it could be, you know, they really just see that as a real way to grow and the receiver position is knowing quarterback. Um, that's kind of a stretch to me, at least. I think it, what it really says is, you know, Kincaid and Luke just aren't there yet. And they really need, if they have to have a backup quarterback, they need Plumlee. And, but also it could be, you know, there's packages where he is at quarterback and that's just kind of a small position he'll play on the team as well. And I think that's kind of thinking about it in my head as I'm speaking, that makes the most sense is that he does have packages and there are, you know, some plays for him at quarterback. Um, but, you know, there's kind of a lot of dynamics to it. And Kiffin saying he's going to be a hundred hundred percent receiver, and then, you know, he's not 100% receiver. He's in the quarterback room. I don't think that's because they aren't confident with him at receiver. I think it's a lot more if they really might have to have him at quarterback at some point. Yeah, 100%. And even when Kiffin said the, the receiver part, I, I hadn't even thought about the package of plays thing. Like, to me, and I didn't think about it in the moment when he said it, but to me, even when he did say that, I was not discounting the fact that Plumley would have some sort of I hate to say gimmicky, but if you really want to go blast from the past, Houston nut, wildcat, wild rebel type of deal at quarterback, I figured that was still probably a thing anyway. I just wonder like how much, how much of that was why he was spending so much time in the quarterback room. Whereas I feel like if you have a wildcat package for other guys, they probably don't need to sit in the quarterback room twice a day. So there's definitely more to it. I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out because you've kind of been on it from the start. I think the first podcast we did, you mentioned if, you know, God forbid corral turns an ankle, Labor Day weekend, it's probably Plumlee, whereas I imagine the hope or the best case scenario for this team or maybe what they hope for, and again, I'm just projecting and speculating here, is that Plumlee takes off at receiver. One of those guys, whether it's Den or Altmeyer, emerges by October-ish, and you don't really have to have that in your back pocket as much other than Plumlee being a package guy to where he can spend, I guess, quote-unquote, more time, more focus at receiver and then have a kid kind of emerge as backup. That's probably best case scenario all the way around, is it not? Yeah, I would say that's definitely best case scenario. And you know, having those packages, it's like some people hate those. Like they like, why are we taking out Corral? But it's important to have. Spoken you, like a Saints fan there. Oh, believe me, God, we can get to that at some point. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's not a bad thing to have. You know, it's just it's something to put on film, which. You know, it sounds dumb. Like, why would you waste a play to put it on film? It's like, well, you're not wasting a play. You know, you you are running the play, assuming it'll be successful. But I mean, he still is a dynamic ass athlete. You know, having him back there taking direct snaps with him and Ely or Snoop or Parrish, like, it's still a pain, you know, to deal with. So I, that's the best case scenario. What you mentioned for sure. Last thing I'll ask on this before we move on to someone, something else, because I imagine there's someone driving down the road that's in the anti-Pumley camp being like, dear God, how much can I fast forward through this? <laughs> what was it like recruiting the kid? Because trying to pick up on it as a guy who didn't have to cover recruiting when, in the last position I was in when uh, Plumley was being recruited, it was two things. One, we were told that part of the reason with Ole Miss because he was sold he was going to at least get a shot to play quarterback. Two, the second hardest thing to pick up on was no one I talked to could tell me what the hell he was as a baseball player. I, I could not get any sort of grasp on what he was as a baseball player at all. And because of that, I would argue he's turned out better as a baseball player. And to tie it into one of his answers, I guess we'll, we'll frame it this way. 
I thought he gave a really interesting answer on Thursday about exploring the transfer portal. He said, if I told you it never crossed my mind, I'd be lying. But I'm happy with kind of what we've established here with my friends, my family, the baseball thing. I'm very happy to be at Ole Miss, which you love to hear a kid say. Because a lot of kids say that and don't mean it or, you know, say the right things publicly. And then they're out the door of the transfer portal because they want to do something else. And I thought that was a very, like, mature answer. And so maybe to tie that back into his recruitment, what was it like recruiting the kid? Like, what did you think he was? Um, an athlete. And yeah. that's a hundred percent facts. In fact, we were actually going through a bunch of high school film and it was like me and Corral were in there and Levy and we were just kind of watching, I guess, Corral's film. And uh, we pulled up Plumley's film from 19 and he was in the, uh, the athlete folder. <laughs> and that, that, that really, uh, that really made Levy laugh his ass off and Plumley did not appreciate that because he had never seen it before. <laughs> but that's what he was. I mean, that's just a fact. And, you know, we didn't think he was going to be a quarterback and neither did Georgia. You know, they, when he was committed there, I, I think they may have told him quarterback, which wouldn't surprise me from that crew, but you know, they were probably planning to put him at receiver or corner. And I think we were planning on probably receiver and then, you know, when it came down to it, we, you know, we weren't super confident with what we had in Tisdale. And we were like, you know what? This kid's a hell of an athlete. Maybe he could play quarterback. And so there was no line. You know, they were, we, when we got there, we were like, look, Plumlee, like, we've kind of looked at our chart and we're like, you know, we, we'll give you that shot at quarterback and it'll be legit. It won't be BS. You know, this is college football, not high school. Like, when you come in as a quarterback, you're coming as a quarterback. And, um, that's kind of how it went. And honestly, you're mentioning baseball because that's been such a big, you know, football, baseball dynamic with a bunch of guys who recruited. We didn't know what he was as a baseball player either. It was a very weird, you know, Ely was this hyped up top 10 pick who uh, had a terrible senior year at prep and basically told teams he was going to come play football, whether that was at old Mr. Clemson, we ended up winning out. Um, but we assumed that Ely was going to be like this guy starting as a freshman and Plumlee was like never going to play and was just kind of like we were a little not annoyed, but we're like, OK, how long is he really going to play baseball? Like we don't even know what kind of prospect he is. Turns out he's a pretty damn good baseball player. And, you know, I follow college baseball much closer than pro. And I mean, Plumlee has really good at bats, better than some of the other guys on the teams. And he's dynamic as an athlete, you know. Not like he doesn't have a great baseball arm, like he doesn't have a great football arm, but he's played a lot. And that's actually a, one of the most surprising parts, at least from my sense of recruiting, is what he's done baseball wise. Yeah, because whatever you think of the kid as a baseball player, because, you know, the fans get frustrated at strikeouts and kids that don't hit the ball over the fence, you know, to every fourth at bat. Whatever you think about him as a baseball player, he was a halfway regular spot starter on a team that was a game away from Omaha. And I, I imagine if you, someone had told me that, in the fall of 19, as I tried to get a sense of what the kid was, I probably would have been like, okay, this guy knows Plumlee's friends with Plumlee. He's bullshitting me. So it's, it's, it's certainly more than I thought he would be. And to wrap all that up to, I thought you brought up an interesting point of like, he wasn't lied to. And that's probably part of what went in the decision to stay. He did get a fair shot and it didn't work out. And he, there's a coaching change and an offense that doesn't fit him. Whereas if he had just been lied to and felt like he never got a fair shake at playing quarterback, I imagine there'd be a little bit of 
bad blood's always a strong buzzword, but he may have been more inclined to transfer if he felt like he had been deceived by any stretch. And he wasn't. And I think that probably plays into him sticking around. And Ole Miss is better for it. They'll have a weapon before it. Uh, kind of transitioning to another position switch guy that is not John Rice Plumley, Miles Battle. Um, Chase Parham put up some pro football focus statistics on Rebel Grove. I'd encourage you to go subscribe to Rebel Grove. If you're not already, already a subscriber. They have some great analytical stuff through pro football focus. And we hadn't talked about battle much that I can recall through our first couple podcasts, but he is a guy that, you know, there's been hints here and there of, Hey, this kid's actually got a shot to be a pretty good corner. He obviously made the move from receiver last year to corner. What were your, I mean, when you heard that he moved, I'll just open and ask this open-endedly, what were your thoughts on what he could be? And has that changed in the last, you know, 18, 12 months to a year, whatever. Yeah, so I'll give kind of a small inside story on kind of how that all happened. Um, there was a real lack of depth at DB last year. And even just for practice, you know, guys were hurt. We didn't have a lot in that room, not from a talent standpoint, really, but just from like literally a body standpoint. And throughout team meetings in the fall and, you know, we're kind of figuring out what we need to do about the situation. Every time – it was brought up. T Buck was like, I want number six Buckley DB's coach. Like I want, I want miles battle, you know, Levy and Nick D Nix would laugh. Like, no, like why <laughs> Like you're not getting him. <laughs> and kind of just, it kept on going and he'd bring it up again. And we'd be like, all right, anybody we think, you know, DB wise and T Buck would be like, yeah, I want six. Like I want battle. <laughs> and everyone was so confused. Like, why do you want this guy at DB? Like, he just isn't a DB body. Like, you know, he's long and athletic, but like he's never played this position a day in his life. Like what, why are we doing this? Eventually he just wanted over. He's like, fine. You know, you, we get my Mark Britt back from playing DB and we'll give you miles battle. And he kind of went out to practice and, you know, T buck was really like focused on him. Like I'm going to make this work. And it really slowly but surely kind of started developing into a guy that we can get on the field in a real game. And he really kind of held his own. You know, he really technically just was not there at all last year, just from a sheer technique standpoint. But, guy, he just has real length. He has real speed. His hips are okay, not exactly what you'd want. But I thought it was going to be a disaster, personally. And I think it's turning out to be a, a solid role player at corner for us next year. So that's a really interesting insight you just gave about it just being a passion project, for the lack of a better phrase, for, for T-Buck. And then it just – I love it. It's like a one-for-one one fantasy football trade. You get Mark Britt back on the other side, and uh, you got yourself a deal. That's, that's kind of funny. What do you think, like you mentioned someone that analyzes players yourself, you thought it was not going to work out. What do you think has allowed it to work out? Is that like the kid committing to it or is that him having more overlapping traits than you maybe originally thought? What do you think has made it translate better than some thought it would? I think it'd be a little bit of both. Um, I think we just were lack, lacking real length at that position. And one thing Miles Battle is, is long and that's just such a, a huge, huge part of playing DB in the SEC is like you just have to be long because usually, especially with these receivers, like, you know, you're probably not as fast. Uh, and honestly, he's just bought in. 
as well. And that, that's important. I think he's like, I've, I've got an opportunity to play at this position where at receiver, you know, I just, I just wasn't going to play. And that's a real motivating factor for a lot of people is playing. And he kind of just turned it around. You know, T-Buck was really coaching him up, really trying to get him to a mindset that to play DB. I didn't think he was going to be very physical. Um, and I think he's got a ways to go there, but he really showed some strides at practice and in some games. And, you know, I don't think he's going to be a starter. He could be. He really, really could be. Um, but I think he's going to be a guy who's going to play a lot at that position. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense that, like, you, we talked to uh, at length about the, the the kind of turnover in terms of adding depth pretty quickly at the defensive back position and, and really secondary as a whole because they're like I was just kind of looking at it and trying to making some loose depth chart projections as we head into game week. I was going through this exercise last night, and depending on how you stack it up, there is a world where you go out first snap, whatever, maybe just say first passing situation where there's more DBs on the field. There's a world where Ole Miss runs out there and Kedron Smith, Jalen Jordan, DeAndre Prince, and Miles Battle are all reserves. Like they may not be on the field. And that depends on what you think of Tyler Knight and how you think of like the coaching staff values him. But like that's that's not a bad secondary option to have those dudes just kind of waiting in reserve at all. That's that almost makes you feel. I know Kiffin mentioned a couple of times they're not quote where they want to be yet. You've talked about that too, but I mean shit. You look at that compared to twenty twenty or twenty nineteen. That's a world of difference. It's a start <laughs> for sure. It's definitely a start, and you know that's definitely a scenario. Your scenario could definitely happen. I think they're getting there, and that's what's encouraging. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's going to happen this year. And that's why it's such a weird dynamic of having such an amazing quarterback, you know, a once in 10 year kind of guy, and then just like begging and pleading for this defense to show up, to take advantage of what you have on the other side of the ball. And I think it's possible, you know, but I'm not going to say I'm overly confident that they're going to be a top 50, 60 defense. There's a lot to go. For sure. And probably one of the things that, when it boils down to it, when you talk about this kind of quick turnover in the secondary and kind of building up depth quicker than you have up front or other positions, it's the impact guys that have been good as advertised that you got transferred, right? Because there is, like I mentioned, you talk about projecting the defensive backs and the starters. There's a world where you get Dean Leonard, Jake Springer, and Otis Reese out there. Those are three dudes that came from elsewhere and presumably have been as good as advertised. And so, I guess part of that, like a lot of that has to be having impact dudes get on the field immediately while you're developing other guys. Because if like if Reese and Leonard sucked, that would probably change drastically how you looked at this, right? Definitely. Definitely would change how you look at it. Yeah. So kind of transitioning elsewhere, big picture wise, talking about wrapping up camp before we get into the game week and some of the message board questions. Because I think we've kind of covered everything else, right? We've talked about the ad nauseum linebackers, defensive line. We know what the offense can be. They did talk to Dennis Jackson earlier in the week. Uh, and that's your guy. So I will ask one question about that. He mentioned that it, you know, it, it, it's never really been a talent thing for Dennis Jackson. It's kind of been figuring out everything else that comes with it and being consistent. And he got asked a question about it. And, you know, I'm not going to knock the kid. He wasn't a great interview, but most a lot of those kids at that age aren't. But he was just like, yeah. I figured I could. I needed to spend more time uh, 
kind of learning the other stuff. I just kind of realized that I said, I guess better late than never. What if anything did you make of that? That's kind of uh, validating everything you've said to where it's not a talent thing with that kid. He's just got to, I guess, put the effort and time into everything else. Yeah. I mean, that, that's basically that, you know, he just, you know, it clicks at some point for some guys and I really hope it clicks for him. Cause that's just a really, really great weapon to have for that offense, a real game breaker speed. You know, Braylon is, has really good speed, but it's not Dennis, you know, really take the top off the defense kind of guy. So that's great for him. And I think that's really good for the team to add another dynamic to an already pretty stacked offense. Yeah. Cause like the way you talk about him and the way I've read other things and kind of, kind of beating, beating around the bushes, not beating around the bush, trying to gather as much as I could from a guy that didn't recover recruiting every day, as I keep mentioning that was always the talk, of even him coming out of high school. It's like, look, if this kid puts everything else together, the speed is the that of an elite SEC receiver. And, like, he could tap into that threshold if everything figures – if he figures everything else out, do you still feel the same way? Yeah, I do. Um, I think there are some traits that just haven't developed fully for him. I don't think he's got the surest hands in the world. But, I mean, a lot of people have made a, a pretty good living off of – being really, really, really fast. And that is something that he definitely is. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him uh, on kickoff return. I mean, I know I think they'll probably have Ely back there, but he's a guy I could see back there as well. Um, he, he's dynamic, and that speed is something you can't, uh, you can't teach. So he's going to be a good player. Last thing before we get into some of the message board questions and get out of here, I've been always interested on the injury front when you break camp and you enter game week. Because for Ole Miss, as I wrote about it a couple of times in the newsletter this week, they're pretty set defensively in terms of health. They really haven't had a whole lot of, of issues there. Offensively, unfortunately, and I don't know where you would like prefer to have an injury offensively because like yes they are deep at running back but I mean how if you lost Ely for any period of time that changes drastically how you look at the running back room but the two positions that they needed to formulate depth at receiver offensive line particularly in the exterior they've been a little dinged up and granted the offensive line injuries have been on the interior which is certainly better than it coming at tackle but how do coaches and how would like you guys as a staff evaluate where Ole Miss is currently from an injury standpoint because outside of Braylon Brown which we don't really know but there's some speculation to the severity of it having not lost anyone for the year potentially at this point that's what safe to assume but having some dudes dinged up how would you evaluate that grade wise going into the first week just where you're at from a health standpoint where Ole Miss is now um Rip, I honestly don't understand the question. Yeah, that was a terrible way to ask that. Are you coming out of camp like, okay, we're all good. Yes, guys are dinged up, but we haven't lost anyone for the year yet? Or are you yeah. more concerned of, shit, you know, we have a couple dudes that may not be able ready to go. Like, how do you weigh that? How would you view the outlook having some minor injuries, but dudes not being lost for the year yet? I got you. I got you. I got you. Yeah, it's I mean. It's still early. It's 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 still early, and um, I've I meant time wise for my performance on this podcast. But, but. <laughs> um, they, you know, they, uh, I think they're in a good spot, and I would say that's a spot that you'd rather be. I mean, you know where you're at. You know you're going to get some of these guys back, and um, I, the Braylon Brown stuff. You know, 
I don't really know a whole lot about that situation. It seems like it could be an issue. Um, but I think Kiffin is still being semi-truthful. Like, yeah, Braylon Brown seemed to show some spark during uh, fall camp and whatnot, but he's still a true freshman who probably wasn't going to play that much. You know, and if he did play, it was going to be sparingly. And maybe he was, you know, coming on a little bit more than I know. But uh, I think they're where they would like to be. I mean, you know where you're at, and that's the most important part. You know what you – or guys are coming back. You know that you have most everybody in a really significant spot for you. So it's probably the best injury-wise they've been in a while. You know, and why that is, it's, it's luck. Don't look into it too far. It's all luck when it comes to stuff like that. But um, I, I think they're happy with where they're at. Let's roll into some message board questions because all I have to do is read these. I can't fumble through my own thoughts trying to ask you one that come <laughs> out of my brain. So here we are. We'll just Sorry. dive straight into the. Uh... Sorry to call you out. That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, 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 no. I please do because I, uh, I oftentimes just get lost in the sauce for the lack of a better phrase. And I want to go so many different ways. And I just need to like hone in on like, let's ask something that makes sense. Here we go. Here we go. From Swaggy P10. Hell of a name here. How are the offensive game planning and play calling duties split between Kiffin and Lebby? Now, again, I'll preface all these. Some of these guys are just curious about for someone that's inside the building. They're not expecting you to know the nuances of everything. I think you've made that pretty clear on the podcast. But just from what you've like seen, like how do they split that up? i got to figure out a way to answer this. I guess, you know, I'm not on the headsets, but – the best way I could say this is don't underestimate how important Jeff Levy is to this entire staff. I think that's the best way to answer this question. Uh, this is his offense with Kiffin, you know, giving pointers, really coming in on game days and, you know, finalizing the game plan. But Levy, Levy is calling plays and Kiffin will call plays here and there, which is what offensive coach head coaches do here and there. But, you know, I just – the best way to answer it would be don't underestimate how much Levy means to this staff. Is Was that surprising to you when the staff changed uh, – this is my own question, but was that surprising to you when the staff changed over? Because, you know, Ole Miss hired him, power move from a charisma standpoint. We talked about that a lot. But, like, he was sold as this offensive guru, really a quarterback-developing it seems like to some degree was it surprising to you the autonomy he gave an offensive coordinator that he hired um to you know like you mentioned it's his offense it's just Kiffin kind of you know ties up loose ends and gives a perspective on you know game plans and stuff like that were you surprised at the autonomy because there was a coach that coached here once upon a time that uh it was either his way or the highway yeah sure um I guess I was a little surprised just really I mean I didn't know Lane Kiffin I didn't know Jeff Levy so I didn't know what to expect, but I think it really kind of goes back to Lane learning so much as a head coach about how you have to, you know, really delegate to what your assistants do. I mean, he hired Charlie Weiss Jr. as his offensive coordinator at FAU. I don't know if you know much about Charlie Weiss, but he's a genius. And he was like 25 years old as an offensive coordinator at FAU. And he really had the offense. Like, it's real. Like, it wasn't Lane and then having a, you know, a guy just sitting there that's a smart young kid. You know, that's just what he did. And, you know, he hired again a guy he trusted because Levy kicked his ass three years in a row at FAU with UCF. And he was like, I want this guy. Like, you know, I know him. I know what kind of offense he runs. You know, it's just I, I really think this is what we got to do. And 
He trusts him. He knows a lot of football. He's been around a lot of really, really impressive offensive minds. And it's not that surprising when you look into it, I guess I could say. What are tennis Reb asked? What are Lane's pregame speeches like? Who had the best of the coaches you worked with? Well, that's a total of two, unless you want to go with an assistant. Um, I know your job's a little different on game day, so you may not have sat in on him, but is, is Kiffin a uh, fire and brimstone guy? Because I'd be surprised if he was. I honestly don't even know. I didn't go in the locker rooms. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's what I figure. So, yeah, obviously not being on field staff, like, y'all, game day is kind of where y'all just kind of – it's it's wrong to say reap, reap the, like, the fruits of your labor. Like, you're just kind of sitting there to watch, and if a kid that you recruited goes out there and does well, then that's kind of y'all celebrating. Like, y'all don't – there's not – from a recruiting perspective – Y'all aren't like contributing a lot to the game they cause, right? That's not really y'all's job description. Just with like some some of the visits and stuff. Yeah, right. But and I was uh, I got to be on the uh, the field in nineteen, but with COVID, like it was literally like only game day staff, you know, on coaches and medical staff, and I think Matt Lindsay, and that was like it. And, you know, that's just the way that they reduced it so large. So I just didn't even go in the building on Saturdays. I just went to the games. <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. uh, pretty sweet setup. I'll answer the question for you. Kiffin talks about playing out of great love for one another, not hatred for someone else, great love for one another. Um, and so that's uh, – that, we'll just go with that assumption. Still a hell of a speech to uh, Bucky Freezes. Credit to him for that. That's still uh, – people still love going back and watching that speech <laughs> for whatever reason. Sure. Uh, let's see. Here's one right up your alley. What's more important recruiting? A, having a school – or no, no, sorry, it's not an A, B thing. It's a school having success sending players to the NFL at a certain position or a particular coaching staff. Was there a particular position that was more – so he's got two. Let's start with the first one. Okay. What's more important, a school having success sending players to the NFL at a certain position or a particular coaching staff? I'm not quite sure I get this, but take this wherever you want. Yeah, those kind of aren't necessarily corollaries. Oh, or... here we go. He, he clarified. Sorry i.e. Ole Miss sending DK and AJ to the NFL or Lane having coached a guy like Amari Cooper. Okay, okay, I got you. And now I see what he's getting at. I think a lot of that is really depending on the kid. You know, you, you shape the way you recruit a kid by, you know, what are the kid's priorities. You know, if a kid only cares about going to the NFL, well, you're going to push that you've got all these guys in the NFL. But if the kid cares about, like, actually legitimate relationships – you probably push the coaches and the staff. So I, I would say it depends. Um, but for Ole Miss's sake, I mean, it's it's incredibly important to have those guys in the NFL doing what they're doing because it's just a visible, you know, representation of what you could be. And, you know, kids buy that. For sure. Is Are there coaches that go – but you mentioned, like, it's interesting you said, if, does a kid only care about going to the NFL – or does a kid actually care about the relationships? And, of course, even though they're 17, 18 years old, kids do have different preferences in what they want for their future, right? Like you mentioned, some kids, like the relationship with the coaches doesn't matter as much, get me to the NFL. Or is that – how does that play into who you recruit at all? Like would they, do certain staffs lean more towards the kid that just wants to go to the NFL, kid that values relationships, or is it just – recruit the most talented kids that you can that fit your system and whatever their preferences are will tailor to, to fit that. Yeah, I would go with the second part. I, okay. was, I was figuring out how to answer that question, but I think you, you put it pretty well. You just recruit the most talented kids. And, you Fair know, their, their priorities are, you know, important to how you do that. But you don't base, you know, who you're recruiting off of, like, 
you know, if they don't care about college, just want to go to the NFL, you know, that that's not something you really look into. It's really more recruit the best kids and figure out the best way to recruit them. What do you think is one of Ole Miss's toughest hurdles in recruiting versus other SEC schools? Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The politically correct answer and an also true answer is the facilities are so far behind. And that's like not even close. I mean, it really is. It's honestly a, a thought process that I had. And I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I think it was kind of a weird advantage that kids didn't come on campus this year for the first staff. Because if they would have come on campus and then go to Alabama and be like, and if their biggest priority is I want nice facilities, we're not getting that kid. You know, we were able just to recruit through relationships and through, you know, Zoom and stuff like that. I thought it was a weird advantage for us. <laughs> it kind of even the playing field from a facility standpoint. And it looks like we're getting some upgrades. That's that's good for them, I guess. But that's the real one. And then, you know, the unpolitically correct answer is, you know, a lot of networks doing a lot of good stuff these days. And for sure. And you know, that's a, gonna yeah, be an interesting <laughs> that's gonna be an interesting part to see how that changes because with this whole NIL thing, at least a decent portion of it is allowed to come above board now. So, like it to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, feel free to push back. But with the NIL portion of it, is it more it going to be more about like being organized and having a plan and having your shit together in terms of how to market a kid? and like get him the most legal money we'll call it possible as opposed to just having an, a, a pretty solid bank account in terms of like the underbelly of things like does NIL make organization more important? I know it's all still fluid, but just like initial thoughts on what that's, how that's affected recruiting. Yeah. NIL is so confusing to me because I just don't know what's good and what's not good. Like legally um, I would say organization just from a standpoint of your people helping you make these deals is incredibly important, but I don't think the coaches are, are doing anything with that. I really don't, you know, I don't think these coaches are going out there and, you know, marketing like, Hey, we need, you know, this for an offensive lineman and this, I just don't think that's happening yet. I think they're just still swimming through it. You know, as you said, it's fluid, but it's it's going to happen, I guess, because it's I mean, these guys are making real money. It's just how they're going about it and marketing it from a football standpoint. I, I don't know. Following up on the facilities aspect of it, because Neil's talked about this, I believe, a couple of times on the podcast and written about it, I think even recently as well. When you say they're behind in facilities, a guy like me covering the program would walk into the indoor fractures facility and be like, this is nice, but I haven't like covered another college program. So like, I don't know how outdated the IPF is. I do. I did gather pretty, pretty early on just from asking facilities questions that the weight room was pretty far behind in terms of that, in terms of like being a facilities advantage. What are a couple of things when you say being behind in facilities, like is I obviously weight rooms one, but like what, what other areas like, do you, do you see when you're talking about that? So the actual indoor facility, the Manning Center, where it's located, the, I guess, the bones of what's there is great. Having the practice fields right there next to the football stadium, next to the indoor facility, all the coaches' offices, was a fantastic design. That is a real advantage. Just you walk to class and walk back. You know, it's just all there for you. Um, the actual indoor, you know, 
field and everything around that. Very nice. Solid. You know, Georgia didn't have one until last year. I mean, that's that was good. The weight room is like they're nice. There's probably nicer ones uh, here in Houston and there in Dallas, if I had to guess. It, it's just so small. You know, it's just not an SEC level weight room. And they're going to fix that, I guess. The coaches' offices are old and small and not that nice. Um, the team room is very nice. That's a plus for only the team. Uh, locker room is outdated. Just, you know, simple amenities they don't have yet. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff, and they're going to tackle it with a full-on, you know, full-blown redo, and that's really the only way you could do it um, because there's just a lot of updates they need. How much does that stuff matter to kids? I imagine it depends on the kids a little bit, but when you're taking kids through, like, are their kids really making decisions based off facilities? I'm sure there are some, yeah. Okay. And, you know, to the average kid, they're really nice, you know, but if you got a kid that's going on an SEC tour and that's one of his, you know, pros and cons, it's probably going to end up as a con on his list. He's like, damn, Ole Miss just, you know, they had a lot of good stuff, which they do. You know, there's a lot of really nice stuff in there, but, you know, probably not as nice as the other ones. If a kid is really basing his decision off of that, that's kind of dumb, in my opinion. Probably didn't want to go there that bad anyway. Exactly. It's kind of like looking for an excuse not to go to school. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's a game of catching up and it's a game of facilities these days. It's important. Um, so and they got some work to do for sure. A couple more here before we get out of here. What are the most important athletic traits that coaches and staff look for at camps? It is easy to determine relative athleticism or are, I think he meant to say, is it easy? Or are there certain data points from drills slash tests that evaluators favor o- over others? Or does the eyeball test weigh in more? So a lot going on here, but the gist of what he's asking is, what are you, like, what are the most important things you're identifying to pick out athleticism and skill sets at camps? I think is the gist of what he's asking. Yeah, I guess I'll just go with one trait and it covers every single position and it's flexibility. Are you stiff or are you not stiff? And stiffness is like your ability to change direction, your hips, your fluidity. Um, That is the most important trait. The first thing you check when you're watching film, the first thing you look at at camp. And it seems like a small one, but it really is the most important thing. You know, making open field tackles, running good routes, making a guy miss as a running back quarterbacks being able to get your feet set, offensive linemen having a good base and changing direction when you're blocking. It's just every single aspect of the sport eventually comes down to your flexibility and fluidity of your hips and your lower body. That is definitely the most important trait that we look at. How uh, Rebel EJ checking in here. This is an interesting one because it sounds like silly off the top, but I don't think it is. So here we go. How far will a kid's character take him into recruiting? And then he has a hypothetical. So he says, say you have a kid who's like a three-star with a few mid-level offers and maybe a service academy nomination, okay? (laughs) Ceiling isn't super high, but the floor is. High character, great work ethic, extremely intelligent. It comes down to the last minute, and you have to decide between him and a four-star at the same position. The four-star is more talented with a potentially higher ceiling, but has some red flags, academics, character, et cetera. How is the sausage made in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, I'll go with the scenario. I would say that doesn't happen that often, just like picking between one or two kids at the end. Like we're 
cutting him and this one's coming in. Uh, but I understand what he's saying, so I'll, I'll answer it. Uh, you're going with four-star kid and the four-star talented kid because a low-floor kid is – you just – you don't sign low-floor kids. You know, you don't ever look at a kid, evaluate him, see his character, yada, yada, yada. They'd be like, well, this kid has a really, you know – or I'm sorry, not low floor. He's got a really low ceiling, but a really high floor, you know, yeah. as a running back. And I'm like, well, we're in the SEC, so pass. You know, I uh, no, no, thank you. And you know, things change. Like maybe he turns out to be a hell of a player. You know, it, there's it's not an exact science, but very rarely are you going to be like, yeah, I want to take the kid with the high floor, not the kid with the high ceiling. Because I mentioned you, it goes back to your your what you said last week that you learned very quickly in recruiting that early on that stuck with you and was kind of profound was it's not the kids you don't get it's the kids that you do get and can't play and character shit aside the kid that has more talent is going to have a better chance at panning out than the kid that's less talented at the end of the day is it not that simple uh yeah it, it is that simple i think there are some how much there's some competitiveness and how much you love football stuff that i guess is more important than like your you know, your character and your grades per se, right. those are real. Those are real traits you look into. And like that would be a bit more of a discussion on how, like how much does he love football? How competitive is he? And how like much of a hard worker is he more than your grades, your actual, like, I guess your life character <laughs> per se, but uh, and you, the kid with the higher ceiling and the more athletic traits, most likely is going to be the better football player. Why does Ole Miss struggle recruiting Memphis and even the surrounding areas like Olive Branch, despite close proximity? I'll uh, I'll get out in front of this a little bit because there was a guy that was almost seemed like Teflon. There was nothing that could bring this dude down. He went through the NCAA investigation. You probably know what I'm talking about. They kind of yeah. man Memphis for a while, and that probably played a part into it. I don't want you to like rag on your old coworkers or whomever, but if you have some sort of color to add to this. Because uh, I would I would also say, like, right, the, the new staff, like, it's still new in terms of them trying to get a better reputation back. Not reputation, but do better in Memphis, right? It's still new in that sense. The carryover from the old staff is not great. But if you have anything else to add to it, I just didn't want to get you in trouble with that answer and tee you up the wrong direction. Yeah, I feel that. But that he, he was part of it. So that that's life. Um, We're talking about Maurice Harris, by the way. In case yes, yes, he was part of it. But um. It, Memphis is such a weird city, and it's it's the closest metro area to Oxford. So I get why it's so important. And at times, in some classes, it really is. Um, I did some research on this question because it, it always came up, and I never understood it. So I looked at the 2019 class. Hell yeah, I love this. Yeah, I looked in Memphis, and it kind of makes me, you know, kind of – fulfills what I think about Memphis. Uh, number one kid in the state was Mo Hampton. Mo Hampton at no point in time ever wanted to go to Ole Miss. It just, he didn't want to. So we tried our hardest. It wasn't happening. Um, he played at LSU for one year and is transferring because he couldn't fit in at outfield. And now he's at like Stanford, you know, pretty good football player. I think he probably could have stayed there and could have kept playing because they had some real safety issues. I wouldn't call him an overall success. Uh, Bill Norton was a kid like Christian Brothers, I think. Uh, he got to Georgia, had a DUI, and now is like a backup defensive lineman. Hadn't done too much. Eric Gray, really good player. 
running back we wanted a lot. Uh, went to Tennessee, was good. Now is at Oklahoma. Kavion Mullins, a nobody for South Carolina. Christian Williams, a nobody for Oregon. Melvin McBride, medically retired at Tennessee. Cormonte Hamilton was a tight end, is a nobody defensive lineman for Ohio State. Those are the top kids in 2019 from Memphis. It is a city that is so overhyped with just the, the way these kids are ranked. Everything about them is overhyped. They're almost always, not always, but almost always a pain to recruit. There's money changing hands. You know, they're always just a pain. I mean, that's just the way to say it. And I mean, it's not fair to every kid because that's not always the case. But I just think it's just a really overhyped area. And, you know, they'll have kids here and there with real success. And you can't just take that mindset into recruiting a new kid from Memphis because that's not fair. That's not how you evaluate kids by the trend that they've been on. But, you know, they haven't had success there because you got to play the game there. And a lot of times it's not worth it, you know, at least from an evaluation standpoint. We don't always think of the Memphis kids that highly. So that's, I guess, the long answer. I saw this question. I'll make sure to do some research. I looked at the 2020 kids and they ain't exactly panning out either where they're at. So it's just uh, that's my best way of explaining Memphis. No, it's a great answer, and I hadn't thought about it from that sense because, as you you and I both know, and I'm not even some sort of – I'm far from a recruiting savant, but Tennessee doesn't have great high school football, like just in general. They and, have – yeah, they have good high school programs. Like in Nashville, they've got like Innsworth. But Memphis, those, guys, those aren't good teams. Like That's anyway. exactly what I was getting at. What's the yeah, program in Memphis that is regularly putting out kids that are working out? That's what I was going to follow up with. I'm glad yeah, you went there. Like, it's like, what why, school is that? Because it doesn't exist, it doesn't seem like. It doesn't really exist. You know, they've got some good programs, like Christian Brothers has some guys, and Whitehaven will have your crew here and there, and MUS will have this one kid they recruited to that school. Because, I mean, they play nobody. Um, and then Briarcrest in, in Briarcrest said yeah, they have a kid here and there. I think Jabari small went there. Don't see him doing too much at Tennessee. Uh, it's just like, it's just not the same. Nashville's a lot better, a lot better and a lot better hit rate as well. Uh, at least since I've been following it. Um, so I don't mean to rag on Memphis or people who love Memphis and like think of it as the greatest place on earth or whatever. Not like that's not where I'm going at here. Just a lot of times our grades on these kids are a lot different than 24-7. You know, four-star, three-stars, none of that means anything. So you see these kids in Memphis always getting overrated. And, you know, sometimes the kids that are actually really good are underrated from there. And it's just, I don't know. I, I get the Memphis question got old working there because we would see on the inside, be like, it's just not that big of a deal. You know, you want to get some kids, but – I'd rather get a kid from New Orleans every day of the week. There's more of them, and they're better. Interesting. The last, that was the last real one we had. Uh, your guy, Brennan, decided to hop on and chirp you and ask why the Pelicans were the worst-run franchise in the NBA. I will tee you up in any direction if you'd like to respond. Yeah, I, I, I quoted his message board post with the million-dollar question because it is um, – rare team where you're owned by the same owner as your NFL team. You know, Which is never team. good. When you're the second fiddle by ownership. Yeah, but she – it's like a bona fide fact that she 
really had a soft spot. Uh, Miss Benson, I'm talking about uh, for the Pelicans. She really did. You know, Tom's team was the Saints, and she obviously loves the Saints and does everything for that team. And I think that team's so well run because they have as good of a scouting and GM, you know, off field staff as any team in the NFL. The Pelicans have been given so many golden tickets Chris Paul, Anthony Davis, Zion Williamson, and they seem to just flubber out. I don't even know the word to say, just crash and burn trying to build around these guys i'm not giving up hope yet um because i think that we're gonna be better this year than last year and i love this new coach already but uh they, they don't have a lot of you know ability to wait around and see because uh he could leave zion someone's eventually moment. going to turn down that guaranteed money for the, the the little like after rookie extension i don't think it'll be zion i think you're right but, i think like, I feel like the – because Van Gundy from the day they hired him was a terrible hire, but I think some terrible. of that was masked by the still Zion, like, just joy that you had in there. So, I think it's a big year. You got to get the coach right. I think they did. At least got a better step towards it. And it will be an important year for the old uh, Pels. The, uh, the last thing we have before we get out of here is just some 10,000-foot Louisville stuff. I'm just curious. I know it's not, like, the same recruiting footprint, but, like, we did some, you know – basic looking into Louisville. It's kind of interesting. Malik Cunningham, the kid quarterback, uh, I imagine was a, a, definitely a Petrino recruit because he was a freshman in 18. Dual threat kid, kind of the, the typical guy that Petrino liked to recruit quarterback. Was pretty good in 19. Dual threat kid. Seems to be a pretty accurate passer when you kind of get, you know, 15-ish yards and in, 20-ish yards and in. Not a, a world beater beyond that. Last year, the entire offense took a step back. Just general thoughts on Louisville. It seemed like the biggest story surrounding them was the head coach just kind of handling his uh, other, uh, I would say, other ventures in terms of kicking the tire on new jobs just as terrible as possible. But just on the field perspective, just anything stick out about Louisville? I imagine there's not a ton of recruiting overlap. No, there's really not, which is kind of odd uh, because, you know, they're in Kentucky and kind of SEC territory. But they've always – Louisville is always – recruited very random areas. I think they do a lot of Ohio, a lot of Florida. Just They're kind of random. We don't – not a lot of overlap there, um, really. But the Cunningham kid's a real player. He's uh, he's talented. and He's a pain to deal with. Just He's really, really athletic. Kind of a poor man's Lamar Jackson, um, which is still a compliment <laughs> for how good he was. Um, but they they had a weird year last year. I read up on them a little bit. They had a negative 12 turnover differential. Which is not that's great. How, that's how you lose football games. They threw, like, I think Cunningham had, like, 15 interceptions. A lot of they, fumble issues, too. They lost 12 of 18 fumbles, I saw in the athletic article. Um, that is something that, as an Ole Miss fan, honestly, I don't want to hear that. That is what gamblers in Vegas look at as – the biggest non, you know, unaccountable variable is turnovers. So a team with that kind of differential, like the odds of them doing that again is low. So my just initial thought is they're probably a little bit better than they showed last year, just a lot of really bad turnovers. So I don't know. I mean, the defense, they've got some returners that look like they're real players. CJ Avery's still on that team. I remember him from recruiting. Um, Man United just scored, yes. Uh, oh, no, he's offside. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Louisville's good. I, I, they're not a slouch. The 10-point spread is a little surprising to me. 
Um, but I think that they're, it's all about the quarterback for them and for the Ole Miss defense as well. These are, it seems like the areas, the, these teams are going to test each other's weakness as well, per se, because with Ole Miss a little banged up on the offensive line, Louisville does have some dudes from a pass rushing standpoint that yeah. you figure would be pretty good. So that'll be an early test for the offensive line. And the flip side of that is Louisville has to replace two dudes. I forget the uh, I, their name are escaping me now, but 60% of their receptions last year and Ole Miss is like the Ole Miss, hopefully an improved secondary. Like they're, I think Louisville might struggle to throw the ball with consistency a little bit, particularly if they can get pressure on this kid. And then the flip side of that is Louisville replaces, I think they had 10 kids depart the program in the secondary and they replaced them with some kids that are coming up from FCS and below level football. For the most part, they have one kid that's pretty good two year starter coming back. Like, but all along that, there's a lot of question marks in the secondary, and that's not what you want going in playing Ole Miss, no matter who's at receiver. So I think these teams will test each other well from a weird standpoint. Last thing I'll ask you, just because we will get into Louisville later in the week, I got a guy on the show. Is there anything to read into Ole Miss having to, to defend a true dual threat kid as kind of their first test, particularly when pass rushing, you know, the front and back ends, I guess, have been an issue for the lack of a better phrase? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 going to be a tough test for them. You know, dual-threat quarterbacks are what – and they're just a pain on defense, you know. They uh, they attack you from everywhere, and, I, you know, you haven't been tackling a whole lot in fall camp and all that. So just getting used to that, getting warmed up, getting ready to go in that sense, you know, you don't really want to be facing a guy who can literally score from anywhere because that's how fast and dynamic Cunningham is. But I think they're going to be ready. The, you know, Atwell and Fitzpatrick with the, the receivers you were mentioning, they're gone, and those guys were actually really, really good. I remember watching them last year lose me a bet against Miami, but they were good. Um, uh, so, you know, that's good for our DBs that are going to be young and inexperienced, not having to go against some, some really, really dynamic receivers. I think Ole Miss matches up really well with this team just on all standpoint, all-around standpoint. The quarterback is the biggest question. For sure, because the way Ole Miss loses that game is this the Cunningham kid loses his mind and Ole Miss can't bring him down or, you know, get him to incomplete a pass. Like 100%. That, that seems to be the way the path. Like, I think Ole Miss has more avenues to victory in that game to where Louisville is just like, you need the Cunningham kid to be the 19 version and better and really just run all over a defense that hasn't proven itself yet. So we'll get into that a little bit later in the week. You and I, the next time we podcast, will be after Ole Miss has played a game. So we will have some uh, some reaction, recap, kind of who played well, who didn't type of stuff to get to, which I'm fired up about. I appreciate the time, as always. I guess I got to check in on the soccer corner. You've got the man you going in the corner screen there because I took too long to podcast. How is uh, – I haven't looked in yet. My hat's still on the way. Brentford's still hanging strong. I saw they had a, a win and a, lo- a win and a draw. How's yeah. that going? They're hanging strong. I think they had two draws. Yeah, sorry. When we had to stop for a technical break, I had to turn the United game on, and we're playing like absolute crap right now. So that's unfortunate. But, 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 Cristiano Ronaldo is coming back. I saw this. So, so all is well. Um, I'm guessing Brentford really, wasn't in the mix for him. <laughs> I cannot say that they were. Uh, that's not their. That's not their type of game. You know, it's buy low, sell high, money ball, baby. Um, was not an option for them, but I'm, that's really exciting. And just overall sports news, I mean, that's a real, real game changer. Um, I saw the Instagram post that United put, posted, 13 million likes, most liked sports Instagram post in the history of the app. 
It's so I'm, I, yeah, yeah I, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm not a big, I'm not, I don't love Darren Ravel's content to say the least, but I do get interested on like the Forbes, like most valuable stuff in terms of like what brands are most valuable. And I'm, I'm not huge into social media, but even compared to NFL teams, if you look at social media followings and then compare that with an EPL team, like Manchester United or Man City or Chelsea or something, it's insane how much smaller even NFL teams are. Like, man, you were one of those teams has 24 million Twitter followers. Do you know how many that is? That's like half of most presidents. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's the world sport. It's just such right. a different brand, such a different uh, fan base. It's almost incomparable. I mean, the, the U.S. invented football to, so we could be good at it, you know. Right. Like, no one else plays it because we're the world champs, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But uh, – it's just it is crazy just the the level of outreach these clubs have it's it's unlike anything else really in the world thank you for tuning in to the united states largest epl podcast i'm brian scott rippy on the other end of the line of course is Wadden rodenberg i appreciate the time dude as always we'll uh next time we're on the uh, on the mic here we'll have some football the recap that counted and i am fired up about it so thanks again dude and we'll catch up with you next week absolutely thanks rippy and that was Weldon Rodenberg. I appreciate everyone tuning into today's show. Thanks for everyone. Thanks to everyone. Sent mailbag questions. I really appreciate it. And uh, we got some cool stuff coming down the pipe as game week approaches uh, for Ole Miss, or game week is here, I should say, but got some cool stuff coming podcast-wise, some other content stuff. So be on the lookout for that. A couple podcasts this week. May even sneak in a bonus podcast. Who knows? We shall see. But uh, everybody have a safe and happy start to their week, particularly those of you Uh, down near the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast, Louisiana. Please stay safe and uh, definitely thoughts with you. Everyone have a great start to their week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.